The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Jeremy Gilbert. We talked about his new book, co-authored with Alex Williams, Hegemony Now, How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back. In part one of a three-part conversation, we talked about Antonio Gramsci's notion of hegemony and how in the view of Jeremy and Alex, we live in an era in which an alliance between big tech and finance structures the global economy and whose values suffuse the cultural field. We talked about why tech and finance play the leading role in the global economy in a way that does not characterise the energy sector or other extractive industries, or most of manufacturing. We also discussed why, in contrast to tech and finance, neither the new left of the 1960s nor the new right associated with the Reagan and Thatcher administrations got the world they wanted by the century's end, even if they achieved certain partial victories. We also talked about why Jeremy and Alex argue that the left should appeal to people on the basis of shared collective interests rather than on the basis of moral values. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation by Sophie Lewis. What if the family were not the only place you might hope to feel safe, loved, cared for and accepted? In Abolish the Family, Sophie Lewis traces the history of family abolitionist demands from the Communist Manifesto to the queer Marxists of the 21st century. Whether you come to the book as a critic of the family or its most ardent supporter, you're sure to find something within its pages to move, challenge or provoke you. Abolish the Family A Manifesto for Care and Liberation by Sophie Lewis is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Jeremy Gilbert is Professor of Cultural and Political Theory at the University of East London and the author of Common Ground, Democracy and Collectivity in an Age of Individualism and 21st Century Socialism. His most recent book, co-authored with Alex Williams and the topic of our conversation, is Hegemony Now? how big tech and Wall Street won the world, and how we win it back. If you'd like to hear the extended 90-minute version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So when I received the book, I was thinking about other books with hegemony in the title, And one of the more famous instances that occurred to me was Noam Chomsky's Hegemony or Survival, published in 2003, which uses the term hegemony in the way it's often used in international relations to uh, refer to military and economic dominance, in that case of the United States in the world system. 
But you and your co-author, Alex Williams, are instead thinking about hegemony as it was articulated by the 20th century Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, for whom hegemony has a rather different, if not entirely unrelated meaning. So before we go into the book in more depth, could you say something on on the meaning and background of the term in in the Gramscian sense? Yeah, sure. So yeah, there's two main ways in political theory in which the term is used, hegemony. And Indeed, one is more within international relations, and it refers to the idea that, for example, you know, the great the hegemon, the dominant figure, in, the dominant party, if you like, in global geopolitics today would be the United States. And the other is in political theory and social theory derived more from uh, Antonio Gramsci, who was writing in the 30s. But, and in that sense, it's more to do with the role that particular social classes or other types of social group can play within a specific society. And the term hege- hegemony in the English translations of Gramsci is usually translating the Italian word hegemonia, which would more normally be translated just as leadership. But Gramsci himself uses the term as a way of participating in a set of debates that had been going on, especially within Russian Marxism since the late 19th century. And they were all debates about how you go about constructing sort of social coalitions that are capable of becoming a revolutionary force and how you ensure that both the revolutionary party and the putative revolutionary class, the industrial proletariat, take a position of leadership within those coalitions. And this is a question that's forced upon the Bolsheviks in Russia because the industrial working class is is relatively small. Yeah, exactly. So the idea is that you have a relatively small industrial working class, but they're still quite pivotal. They're able to exercise considerable leverage because where they're concentrated is the cities and the transport networks. Um, But numerically, they're far, far smaller than the peasantry and smaller than the industrial proletariat elsewhere. I mean, this isn't just an issue for the Bolsheviks. It's already an issue for the Russian Social Democrats, they called the Marxists before they became the Bolsheviks in the late 19th century. It continues to be, a, be an issue and becomes more of an issue. And over time, they develop this theory that the industrial proletariat can still play the historical role attributed to it by Marxist theory, but in a different way from how Marx envisages it. Marx envisages the industrial proletariat growing and to some extent the proletariat in general, you know, the class of people who live by selling their labour, which is bigger than just industrial workers, growing to become the majority of society and, and a relatively socially and politically uniform bloc, which will take mass action and, and overthrow the bourgeoisie eventually. Whereas, you know, in, as you say, in the Russian case, they have to conceive of that historic role slightly differently, that you have to think about the industrial proletariat as being this advanced social force which will lead the masses, even though most of the masses are peasants, and importantly, you know, soldiers, or, um, who will lead them into towards revolution. And of course, you also, Lenin also thinks you have to confront the fact that industrial workers themselves, for the most part, don't become revolutionarily militants on their own mm. on their this own this is the trade union consciousness line exactly they they only they only tend to achieve trade union consciousness meaning they're not really interested in challenging capitalist social relations as such they just want to keep maximizing their wages and improving their working conditions 
So it requires the Revolutionary Party itself, led by a professional cadre of revolutionaries, to lead them. So in all and in all of these contexts, the context of hegemony implies the taking on of this leadership role by a particular institution or social group or even a coalition of social forces. And up to the time when Gramsci is writing, this is usually thought of as being a way of addressing the question of how you create a revolution, how you create revolutionary social forces. And then Gramsci's innovation within that current of debate really is to use the same concept and the same set of ideas to understand the ways in which existing powerful social groups uh, maintain their positions of social leadership of of hegemony so in a capitalist society such as the ones Gramsci is thinking about in the 1930s whether it's Italy or the United States you can identify the capitalist class as hegemonic but within the capitalist class there will be some imbalances of power between say industrialists and financiers and also Usually what will happen is that there will be various social groups in society, you know, sections of the middle classes, the petty bourgeoisie, even maybe privileged um, privileged groups of workers who will all more or less um, be, become part of a, a sort of social coalition which is committed to maintaining a particular set of social and economic relationships which benefits them all to some extent. The process of maintaining that position yeah, is an, always an ongoing process and it is what Gramsci calls hegemony. So hegemony becomes this very flexible conceptual tool for thinking about power relationships basically and thinking about how power relationships in general are both maintained and challenged. Do you think it would be fair to say that the salience of the concept of hegemony waned in the first couple of decades of the post-war era in countries like the United Kingdom, the US, France, uh, you know, the most industrialised societies, because at that time it would have seemed to people on the left that the industrial working class was advancing, that it was growing, and, and that it could play a much larger role than was the case in societies such as Russia at the time, the Bolsheviks, or, or the Italy that Gramsci was writing about. Well, I don't know if it's right to say that it waned. If we're talking about the English-speaking world, it wasn't really a concept people were talking about. I mean, there might have been people who were aware of the Russian debates, um, people like Plekhanov and then Lenin thinking about hegemony. But Gramsci wasn't translated into English until there were little bits were translated in the 60s. And then the uh, significant quantity of writing wasn't available to the early 70s. So people weren't really thinking about it at all. I, I suppose, that I mean, as much sort of feeling the necessity of thinking through how you build coalitions of, of different groups. Well, yeah, I think that's right. And um, I mean, the, the concept takes on a real salience in the English-speaking world, especially in Britain in the 70s, as it becomes apparent that the social, the sort of social coalition which had been hegemonic in the post-war period is, is breaking up, is disintegrating and is losing hegemony. Um, you know, what Gramsci calls the block. The hist- you know, Gramsci calls one of these social coalitions a social block. And if, it's a hegem- and if it's a sufficiently hegemonic social block, you can call it a historic block. What people using Gramsci's ideas, although these are ideas from the 30s, to understand the post-war period and the 1970s, what they, the conclusion that they came to was that what was happening in the 70s was that 
a particular historic block, which was a sort of coalition of industrial manufacturers, uh, male industrial workers and their institutions like the unions and state institutions, governments, which had become hegemonic in the post-war period, uh, was losing its hegemony and was and what and its internal coherence was disintegrating under various competing pressures. You know, the general. I mean, this is where we get the idea of the post-war settlement. The idea that there was a never a static or stable or uniform ideology or program, but a broad understanding that, for example, the working class would not push for social change on the scale that happened in places like Russia. But on the other hand, the capitalist class would accept that they had to share profits with workers to a historically unprecedented degree, uh, both through taxation and the spending of taxation on public services and through just literally inc massively increasing wages and pension entitlements and reducing working hours. But of course, that settlement was always dependent partly upon other groups, social groups, l losing out to some extent or having to be relatively marginalised. So... Even within the capitalist class, this depended upon the finance capital, the banks, the speculators who had been the sort of lords of creation in the late 19th century up until the Great Crash of 1929. Uh, it depended on them really having their freedom of movement curtailed and really their, their power significantly reduced by things like the, the Bretton Woods arrangements, which massively uh, reduced the scope for international currency speculation, etc. It also involved women who had been experiencing uh, historically significant levels of social and political emancipation in the 20s, and who did continue to go out to work and go into education in, in greater numbers than they had done, say, in Edwardian times. It depended on them accepting a situation, in where, at least at the level of social discourse and sort of authoritative discourse they they were expected to be uh, to really only have a social role as housewives i mean there was always a tension between the fact that the, the economic the socio-economic reality was that married women even with children were continuing to sort of go back to work whereas the actual you know the actual low point for married women going to work was the Edwardian period. But the kind of ideology of the housewife is really central to in the 50s, both to public culture and also to public policy and welfare policy and what have you. you know, the assumption is that a married woman is, is, is basically you know, inferior in terms of social authority to her, her husband. And that is the only social role to which women of, of, within a huge class range should be aspiring, really. So that was it. And it was also, you know, it was notoriously, and I think one can say accurately, it was the worst time in history to be gay. Because, you know, as Gramsci points out in his, his, you know, he points out in the 1930s that the, you know, the culture of the industrial factories, which were developing in the you know, 20s and 30s was one that partly depended on very high levels of sort of regulation and discipline of the lives of workers, like including their sexual and family lives. And it produced this kind of conformist, conformist society. So, and indeed, even young people, you know, were expected to exhibit historically, arguably historically unprecedented levels of deference towards their elders. You know, the French always have this saying about remembering post-war culture the, the saying is, is just we papa. Papa. yeah yeah exactly we papa was just the the end of every argument and so what's happening in this in the 70s is there's obviously this huge economic social political crisis going on and people are looking to gramsci 
as the person who sort of seemed to explain, uh, he sort of he sort of predicted in many ways in his famous essay Americanism and Fordism. He sort of uh, predicted in the thirties what this post-war society was going to end up looking like, and the thing they see coming unstuck in the 60s and 70s is that world he described. And they conceptualise it as a hegemonic crisis. And that means that it's a crisis at the level of this social block not being able to maintain its coherence, at the level of too many of these other social groups no longer being willing to defer to the authority of that social block and its constituent members. And of the the basis for generalised consent to that post-war settlement breaking down. Because on the one hand, capitalists are having their profits squeezed and they don't want to have to keep sharing profits with workers in the way that they had been. On the other hand, there's a technological revolution happening, the cybernetic computer revolution, which means that uh, finance capital can see ways in which it could start to, you know, it could start to um, expand its operations again and break free from the limits of the... Bretton Woods arrangements, etc., and you get things like the euro dollars market um, beginning in the late sixties, and 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 the, and generally, and all, but at the same time, you know, industrial workers themselves um, are not at all willing to accept restraints upon the expectations that they've built up over the past few decades about how fast their wages are going to keep rising, and they're not at all interested in that. And indeed, the most militant of them are beginning to question why they should have to simply remain wage workers in the old sense, why they shouldn't be given some kind of real material say over the management of their workplaces, etc. So all of this breaks down and all of this is seen as a hegemonic crisis. And I think in another, I mean, something I've argued before, actually not so much in this book, but about the reception of Gramsci in the 70s, is that, well, Gramsci is basically a theorist of defeat. You know, he is, he, all, all the major writings we have of Gramsci's are stuff he wrote in his prison notebooks while he was, where he spent the last few years of his life having been imprisoned by Mussolini's fascists. So having been the leader of the Italian Communist Party in the 20s, having led things like the, the Turin occupations of the Fiat factories, having been a leading journalist, the founder of one of the most important newspapers in the country, in the 30s, he's just sitting in his prison cell, sort of theorising. That must have been a particularly sort of devastating defeat because at the time, Marxism was a more teleological ideology than it is today, this sense that history is marching ineluctably towards, you know, the workers' paradise sort of sort of thing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's, that is what forces Gramsci to sort of engage in this, this, these revisions or sort of complexifications of Marx's political theory. Not, not so much the, the fun, fundamentally social and economic theories, but the political assumptions within Marxism. And again, I think it is partly, it is with the defeat of the new left in the early 70s that the, the people who had been part of the new left, which suffered large defeats, large-scale defeats, are turning to Gramsci to kind of understand what's going on and figure out how you might how you might go forward and you know it's Gramsci also really I mean one of the Gramsci is concerned with the question of how you do radical politics in a society which is not like the ones that Marx was living in in Victorian times or that Lenin was living in but is really in in many ways much more like our societies are still today society where you have mass suffrage you have institutions of mass democracy. You have a mass media, including popular media. You have mass literacy, etc. And his conclusion is that under those circumstances, 
then uh, it's absolutely necessary for socialism or communism to be mass movements, to have a vast range of institutions and which can bring together very large numbers of people to overcome their enemies. And again, I think it's partly it's partly the failure of the new left and the counterculture and, ten, and the new social movements of the 60s and 70s to really acquire a mass popular base which can challenge forms of conservatism and liberalism, which I think is, does make Gramsci seem particularly relevant to people in the 70s. Of course, the other word in the title of the book, along with hegemony, is is now. And in the introduction to the book, you write that we are writing this book as something of a guide as to what we, the political left, should do in these uncertain times. To understand this era requires thinking much more broadly than we are accustomed to, to go beyond our commonplace obsessions and reflexes. We have to think about how power actually works, not just in specific circumstances, such as during an election or the emergence of a social movement, but in general. To do so, we need to be thinking about politics through the idea of hegemony. Could you say something briefly on on what you think some of those commonplace obsessions and reflexes are that you wanted to interrogate in the book and that that you want the left to move away from a little bit? I think we end up clarifying this in the conclusion a bit, and that is the the, the sort of reflexes we want to get away from in particular are moralism and, and identitarianism, I would say. And I would focus first particularly on moralism and say that you know, the, the problem with moralism, by which I mean appealing to people's sense of virtue and appealing to some sense of virtue as the basis for your political rhetoric, your attempts to persuade people to uh, agree with you and follow you politically and to engage in whatever kinds of behaviour you want them to engage in. I mean, maybe just voting for you, maybe going on strike, maybe something else. The problem with all that is uh, it's not very effective politically and it's especially not effective with the kind of people who we most need to win over a lot of the time, who are the people who are not already spontaneously committed socialists or radicals of some kind. And that's partly why later in the book the, um, the concept of interests becomes really central to our theorising because we think that... Ultimately, if you want to persuade people to join your social coalition, your social block, uh, make it allow it to become eventually hegemonic, you know, you have to offer them something. You have to make clear to them what's in it for them in doing so, which is something it should be very easy. I mean, because ultimately, you know, the goal of socialism, from my point of view, is not to create a virtuous world. It's to create a world in which uh, resources are distributed in, in, in such a way that the vast majority of people would find their material circumstances improved compared to what they are now. But I think historically, especially in the English-speaking world, especially in England, actually, I was saying in England and Wales, um, the, uh, there is a real, there's just an absolute addiction on the left, actually, to, mo- to moral discourse. You know, people like, people on the left, I, I mean, I honestly think this is probably true of most self-identified leftists, is the reason they're on the left is because they like the idea of themselves as good people. Uh, and they are good people. I'm not saying they're not. Uh, but they like that idea of themselves. And that idea of themselves as good people is fundamentally important to them. And their their main point of appeal in trying to get other people to support them is, is the fact that they are good people and that the people should support good people. And I think, you know, the exemplary figure here would be Jeremy Corbyn. And I think it was a real limit of his appeal. That it was a real limit of his appeal that 
he mostly appealed to people on the basis of being a good person as opposed to his enemies being bad people and he didn't make clear enough to people who weren't moved by that kind of appeal what it was he was planning to do for them and in their interests uh, rather than just in the interests of the, the most vulnerable people in society which um and i just think as we think it's just politically ineffective if you were to ask the average person in the uk who, who identifies as a socialist versus um asking the same question of uh, you know i don't know someone in brazil or, or italy or elsewhere you think you would get you know a substantially different different answer because i mean I, I would imagine you know you ask people in the uk why do you identify as a socialist or being on the left and they would say well it's to do with my values it's to do with the values of fairness egalitarianism uh, justice but you think that a lot of people elsewhere would articulate it more in terms of saying I'm a socialist because it's uh, you know it's in my interests and the interests of my of my class. No, I don't. No, I don't think that's true of people who are self-identified socialists. But I think more people in those other countries, more self-identified socialists, understand that that isn't going always going to be an effective language with which to persuade people who are not self-identified socialists to support. You. Right. Yeah. And this is one of the fundamental problems for us from which the book is proceeding. This is what the theory of hegemony is always about, the question of how you achieve some political goals and you are starting from a position of relative weakness. And the fundamental weak position of weakness from which socialists are starting in a country like Britain is that only about 25% of people in the country could in any meaningful sense be described as sort of value socialists. And 25% is enough... It's enough to make a lot of noise and to occasionally, like, accidentally get control of the Labour Party or something. It is not enough to win anything against the level of opposition which socialism always faces in this country. So the fundamental question is always, how do you build out your coalition to somehow get support from the, the other, you know, the, other, the next 25% of people, who, which is what you really need? And I would say, this sort of comes back to the question... You asked. I mean, it's absolutely. I'm afraid, like, it's absolutely not a sufficiently ingrained habit of mind of lots of people. I think probably most people on the left in Britain to think in those terms. I mean, you see the sort of debates around things like the relationship. Yeah, you, know, you think things are around the possibility of coalitions with other parties, or you know, over the past few years um, in, on the left in Britain. I mean, an awful lot of people on the left in Britain, I would say, unfortunately, I think probably most people on the left in Britain really just cannot get their heads around the idea that, look, you are going to, you are not going to form a progressive government without persuading a bunch of people to support that government who you are never going to persuade to be fully 100% committed, paid up socialists. Okay. And that is going to have to include a lot of people who don't usually vote Labour. It's, in fact, it's going to have to include some people who have never voted Labour and probably never going to, because the, all the people who've ever voted Labour in the country is still you know, under 45%, and that's still probably not enough to create a big enough coalition to meet the challenges which uh, so implementing a socialist programme would meet. So you're going to have to find some way of bringing other people into the coalition. And and people just don't think that way. I mean, especially people on the sort of radical, on the far left, they tend to think in terms of maintaining the sort of purity of a socialist position as being the, somehow the way in which you achieve success, uh, which is just you know, nonsense, really. I mean, there's no historical basis for it. Would those people not say, I mean, you know, let's take an obvious example, the idea of like a progressive alliance, including the Liberal Democrats. And, and I assume those people 
they wouldn't say, oh, you know, I, I, I object to this because of my ideological purity. They would say the Liberal Democrats are too ideologically distant to, uh, to, to be trusted and that they will not play an effective role in, in a coalition with the left. Well, I mean, I would, my response to that is you either you find a way, you create, you construct a coalition in such a way that they, that they don't have any choice but to play a constructive role and you give them some things that they want. Uh, in return for them playing a constructive role, or you figure out some other plan to deal with the fact that, you know, they exist and and that you don't have, like, close to 50% of support in the country. And what that plan could consist of could be, like, hundreds of things. There could be loads of things. Um, I don't claim to have, you know, all the answers to that question, but my point is simply that is the question which has to be asked. And in my experience, it isn't the question people... It doesn't even seem to occur to people most of the time. I mean, the simple fact that, I mean, the socialists have got to be asking themselves every day. Of course, we've got to be asking ourselves every day, how do we persuade more people to be socialists? But we also have to be asking ourselves, okay, so what do we do? How do we build a coalition which extends beyond all the people who will call themselves socialists? You know, because I just think we're never going to get enough people who call themselves socialists to do it. You, and there's no historically, I mean, there's, there is just no historical example of that happening. I mean, it didn't even happen in Russia. The, you know, the Bolshevik hegemony was eventually built over a period of years through all kinds of sort of compromises and negotiations with, you know, liberals and, you know, what we today would call social democrats and socialists. And a lot of the time that involved eventually radicalising those people or bringing them into, you know, the Bolshevik movement. But it also, but it involved all kinds of negotiation. It didn't involve just sitting there saying, well, we don't agree with these people right now, therefore we're not going to have anything to do with them. But, it, but I think, you know, in, under different historical circumstances, there will be many different answers to the question. But the question always has to be asked. And it always, there always has to be some attempt to answer it. You know, what are you going to do about the fact that you don't have right now enough people who agree, you know, who agree with you to have a, a, an ideologically uniform programme based on what, what you would ideally like? Um, and I think that is, you know, that's always the crucial question. And like I keep saying, there's going to be many different ways of answering it under many different circumstances. Do you think it might actually be a little bit useful if, if people on the left started to, to be a, a little more, you know, kind of cynical about their own motivations to, and to actually think, yeah, OK, I, I, I am thinking about my own, my own interests and I believe my interests are, are served by being involved in this socialist project. Because I think talking about the idea of, of morals and, and values, that's an arena where it's easy to want to try and sort of universalise to the rest of the rest of humanity or, you know, a very, very broad, broad part of it. Whereas when we think about interests, we are aware that interests conflict with each other and that the interests of the working class do not coincide with the interests of, of, of everyone. Yeah, well, that is absolutely when our perspective, really. Our perspective is, you know, unfortunately, to be politically effective, you have to be absolutely cynical. That doesn't mean we have to abandon. And done, I don't think cynical is not quite the word. No, I, no. The, the word I prefer is unsentimental. Yeah, yeah. You have to be absolutely unsentimental. Specifically, you have to be unsentimental about, you know, things like political institutions, things. I mean, this comes back to stuff we've talked about on the show before about, you know, the relationship of people to institutions like the Labour Party. So in some ways, I'm just reiterating now a position I've taken on this show more than once before, which is, I think, an utterly debilitating feature of Corbynism was the fact that about half the people involved in it really just had a completely sentimental attitude to both the, to the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. And it was, a, you know, they weren't anything like sufficiently cynical or instrumental or unsentimental about, 
you know, the, the Labour Party as an institution and, and the fact and the need to rec- to view it as nothing but an arena of struggle rather than something that you either you know have affection for or that you have a distaste for. And I think that I mean that's a good local example, but much more broadly, I think yeah, you have to be um, really yeah, you do have to be unsentimental. You have to you have to think in terms of trying to maximise the power of your social group and you do that partly you know by building up the coalition of which your social group is a potential leader you know this isn't to say that that the ultimate goal isn't to you know improve everybody's lives because it is i mean the ultimate goal is still always to to improve the lives of, of as many people as possible and you know at some level there is always going to be you know you can say there's a certain moral motivation but i don't you know, I think I do think. You know, for me, it's, it is really clarifying to say, look, I am a socialist because you know, un, you know, the implementation of a socialist program would improve my life at the same time as improving the lives of the vast majority of people in, in the country, and 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 only th- only something that would improve the lives of the vast majority of people would also would Im- could improve my life that much. I mean, both those things are true at the same time. You know, there's almost nothing that could happen that could improve my life individually. In the way that it would be improved if you know, a program is implemented that improved everybody's lives significantly, but it's really, really easy to go from that observation and that intuition into just a kind of moralism, to saying, "Well, this should happen because it's nice, because it's kind of virtuous, because it's good." I mean, I haven't fully clarified this point actually. I think about who it is we need to win over. I mean. I think this is true in almost any kind of society, but it's very clearly the case in a liberal democracy like ours. The people you're trying to win over are the swing voters, like always. You know, the people with ve- with very clearly defined moral commitments already know who they're going to vote for. They always vote for the same party, you know, and they know who they're going to vote for. The people you're trying to win over are the people who almost by definition have a sort of transactional attitude to politics. You know, they'll change their votes depending on what's in it for them. And they're not changing their vote. The people who, the swing voters, the people who move between voting for one party and another, they're not doing so because they're changing their whole ideological worldview. Because they're not not radically changing their whole conception of social reality. They're doing it because they're making some kind of judgment about what they think a government led by one party or another was going to do for them. So it pretty much stands to reason that you've got to appeal to people's sense of what, to bring those people in particular, you've got to appeal to their sense of what you can do for them. And historically, the left in Britain has just been terrible at this. You know, it's been absolutely disastrous at this. Is it partly that we do have that idea of of the swing voter as as someone who who shifts around depending on, you know, what's in their sort of narrow material interests? And and we feel a degree of contempt for that yeah i think it probably is yeah yeah we do i mean i share that of course like who are these people you know of course i know who are these people who just like change their vote like you'll vote for labor one year and then you'll vote for the tories you're like what kind of you know it's it, you only do that apart from anything else if you have very low information about how politics actually works in this country so almost by definition people doing that are pretty ignorant I mean, there are on the left, as there are on the right, there are values-motivated voters who will switch between parties. I mean, if you're in Scotland or Wales, you know, there, there are places where people will switch between Labour or the Nationalist Party or the Greens, depending on who they think has the most progressive programme and values. So it's not that you can't, it's not that there are no swing voters, but 
not there are some exceptions, especially in Scotland, but for the most part, the, the the movement between those the movement of votes between those parties isn't the thing that's determined electoral outcomes. Uh, the the movements between parties that determine electoral outcomes are, are most of all are the movements between Labour, Liberal Democrats, and Tories. And indeed, who are I, mean, I completely? I can, of course, on a personal level, look on a personal level, I completely share that feeling that it's just ridiculous. But unfortunately, those people, those contemptible people, are the people without whose support we cannot form governments. And so, you better figure out how to talk to them. But I also just think on a, on another level. I mean, to me, it's, it's just. You know, the failure to speak a language of interests on the part of the left in, in in England is just to deprive ourselves of the most compelling rhetorical and persuasive tools at our disposal. I mean, the comparison I always make here is between Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders. And Bernie would occasionally appeal to a, a sort of morality, but even then it was a, a sort of morality of solidarity, like a very, very quite clearly identified sense of mutual interests. And for the most part, Bernie's rhetoric was always about, look, you know, pe the people who are not as well off as they could be in this country are not as well off because they're getting screwed by rich bastards and we're going to stop them screwing them. I mean, he wouldn't use exactly that language, but pretty close. Whereas Jeremy, you know, whenever Jeremy gets up to give a speech, almost always, he, he will condemn the rich, but he'll condemn them for being greedy and he'll condemn them morally, and then he will always, always. I've just, I've never seen Corbyn give a speech. I'll be honest, or a TV interview, and not do this. He will always then refer to the suffering of of the worst victims of inequality. He'll always talk about homelessness. He'll talk about people on benefits, all of whom are constituencies whom we should rightly want to protect and improve the lot of, but. The, what swing voters in particular hear when Corbyn does that is they hear, here is a guy who is going to do something for people other than me, homeless people, benefit claimants, but not for me. Whereas what people hear when Bernie talks is they hear, oh, well, as someone like with a mortgage and a, and a wage, like he's going to help me as well as those other people. And it's a fundamental difference. You know, it's, it's, it's not superficial. It's, and that's why... Jeremy Corbyn was had net popularity for about three weeks in 2017, but for the most part was massively unpopular. Whereas Bernie Sanders was, you know, the most popular politician in America for several years. You know, which has which is a fact which has absolutely not been lost on the Democratic leadership subsequently. So it's just it's rhetorically very powerful and persuasive if we can sh demonstrate to people that they have shared interests you know at a material level not just rather than just inviting them to share a moral universe which is historically what the left always does you know it's absolutely not just corbyn by any means i mean they've all did it i mean blair's only real claim to any sort of you know legitimacy as a figure of the left was on the basis of a kind of vague moralism about you know community and brown you know was was worse i mean brown you know brown gave that bloody his first speech as prime minister going on about he was the son of the manse you know meaning a, a a child of the scottish clergy as if that was going to impress everybody 
you know, Ed wasn't any better. And Kinnock was just telling me, Kinnock used to give these speeches. I mean, Kinnock's most famous speech is like, if you are, don't vote, you know, I I warn you, like, if you, you know, don't, don't be sick, like, don't be unemployed, like, don't be poor if the Tories win tomorrow. And I, I remember th- hearing that as a teenager, just thinking, that's great. The trouble is, all the poor and sick and homeless people are already voting for us. And the people who aren't voting for us are not poor or sick or homeless or unemployed. That's why they're not voting for they're the people we've got to persuade um and it i should say uh, welsh listeners if you're not happy with jeremy's uh, impression please uh, write to jeremy rather than <laughs> rather than me <laughs> um i mean of course it you know it, it came out you know it came out of that welsh chapel tradition which is very uh, you know, and, it, and it's very and people and it's it works in wales and it works in kind of other communities with similar traditions but it fell flat on its face in the southeast where you've got a lot of transactional voters and that stuff, it also speaks to the Christian inflection of, of socialism in, in the UK, which is somewhat unusual in, in Western Europe. Yeah, of course. I mean, so Harold Wilson famously said the Labour Party owes more to Methodism than to Marxism. I think that was slightly, you know, that he said that that was political rhetoric in itself. Historically, it's not. It's really not true. I think he probably knew it wasn't true. But... Um, but in terms of the kind of sentiment and the intellectual and rhetorical habits of the, the left, the mainstream left in Britain, it's absolutely true. And I think it's really, I mean, it's a very, I mean, partly what I'm saying and what we're saying in the book is that we just, we need to be more Marxist and, and less in, in our approach, in our basic approach to thinking about these these issues. Do you think that's part of what people might find perhaps sort of difficult or confusing that, you know, if someone says, you know, we need to be more, more Marxist about things, the idea of, of that also going, going along with the idea of allying with the Liberal Democrats in a certain circumstance just seems very exotic and weird and counterintuitive to people. Well, look, if you're referring there to my, my I mean, I, do, I have a specific position that, you know, and I have had for years, which is that, yeah, Labour, the Labour Party ought to adopt a policy of proportional representation, it ought to support proportional representation, and it ought to be in a, you know, we ought to invite the Liberal Democrats to join a political coalition to implement some kind of a relatively social democratic reform programme. And, well, I would say the sentiment that, I mean, that, I mean, that is absolutely a position which for me is based on a hard Marxist analysis of the reality of the balance of class forces in Britain today and the reality of the sort of class identity of the various political entities involved. Uh, you know, this is an argument I've made in print more than once. I mean, apart from, look, the point is, you know, if you think about the, Lib- I mean, the Liberal Democrats specifically, people have a massive hang-up in this country. The people in the left, in England in particular, have a massive hang-up about the Liberal Democrats because of the coalition government, the Clegg coalition government. I heard Andrew Murray say in an interview just a couple of weeks ago, the Liberal Democrats have only ever supported the Tories in coalition since they were formed as a party, which is absolute nonsense. They've only ever formed one national government and that was with the Tories, but nationally, in local government, in the Welsh Assembly, in the Scottish Parliament, in councils up and down the country, Liberal Democrat Labour coalitions have been far, far more common than Liberal Democrat Tory coalitions. And in all of those contexts, Liberal Democrats have supported Labour administrations implementing their programme under circumstances where Labour couldn't get an overall majority of its own. So this is just this is just actual historical fact. This is actual historical reality, that under those 
those circumstances, uh, the Liberal Democrats have formed a coalition, have formed coalition, have supported Labour administrations. And historically, their predecessors, the Liberal Party, uh, supported national Labour governments as often as they supported Conservative governments. They supported Conservative governments as often as they supported Labour ones, but they supported Labour ones as often as they supported li- mm. uh, Labour ones. And, and the party of, of Nick Clegg, this was the Liberal Democrats under the control of the Orange Book group, the most, yeah, well, exactly. most right wing. I mean, this is, well, let me, okay, well, I mean, let me explain a bit about the Liberal Democrats more broadly as, a, as an institution and as an organism. The Liberal Democrats were basically formed out of a merger between the Liberal Party and the SDP, the Social Democratic Party. Social Democratic Party was a right-wing breakaway from the Labour Party, and they were an absolute bunch of bastards. I completely understand why people sort of hate them and their legacy. But broadly speaking, the old Liberal Party by the 1980s only existed in parts of the country like the Scottish Islands and the West Country, where basically the Industrial Revolution had never happened. And, and, the, and consequently, the Labour Party had never had any place. It hadn't really existed. And it had been always, historically, the party of reform and the party of opposition to, to the Tory party. Uh, the, the SDP fraction, on the other hand, tends to be based more in urban areas, and it's based in areas which are dominated by Labour. And in those places, indeed, you join the Liberal Democrats because you're a bit of a Tory, but you're socially liberal, and the Tories have got no support. The trouble with this is most Labour Party members who are concentrated in cities, the only Liberal Democrats they ever meet are these quite right-wing ones. And indeed, the, the, the period of Nick Clegg's leadership is really the only period when that, that wing of the party has completely dominated. Um, so people really have a kind of exaggerated view of how right-wing the Liberal Democrats are overall and a really a mistaken view of what their overall politics is. But they also have a very naive view about the politics of the Labour Party. I mean, I don't see how anybody can think that a party that includes people like Wes Street... I mean, you know, Wes Streeting is to the right of any Liberal Democrat MP on any issue you you can choose, in my opinion. I think I have to be clear. Look, the reason I always advocate, I've always ad- I've advocated for the idea of progressive alliance is partly is because. <laughs> I've said this so many times, I'm really tired of hearing myself say it. You've invited it, so I'm going to say it. Look, in the entire history of the Labour Party, if let's count the number of times this, a particular thing has happened. That is, Labour has been in opposition. It has gone from opposition to win a convincing parliamentary majority, and it has gone on to implement a progressive programme. Right. The number of times that has happened is not one, it's not two, it's not three, it's zero. That has never happened. Because in 45, Labour was already, uh, had already effectively been in government. Yeah, exactly. For 1945, Labour was not coming from opposition. The Labour ministers were part of the National Coalition government. They were helping to run the country. They commissioned the Beveridge Report and had several hundred thousand copies of it printed to be sold cheaply in branches of WH Smith's. So basically, they commissioned the beverage. They basically had three years to propagandise their manifesto, while Churchill was basically distracted, you know, running the war, you know, the military side of the war. Mm. A beverage, so, uh, a liberal, of course. Uh, yeah. So that had to happen. And then the Blair, the only time apart from that, that Labour ever got um, convincing majorities, it was either because it was in government, Wilson got a convincing majority in 66 because he had been in government for two years and called an opportunistic election at a favourable moment in the economic cycle. And then there's the Blair government, who I would argue did not not implement a progressive programme overall. 
So it's just never happened. It's also the case that in all those countries that have had more successful social democratic movements than ours, especially the Scandinavian countries, but also Western European countries, where you have a more advanced welfare state than ours and one that survived the neoliberal period better than ours, in all of those contexts, those social democratic programmes have always been implemented by coalitions that included parties of the far left, the revolutionary left, and social democrats and liberals, like always. Like there's, basically, there's no exception to this. So all the evidence is, if you want a successful, sustained, long-term reform programme, you have to build a political coalition that extends out to include the Liberals and includes the Liberal parties. Like you, there is just no historic example of, of anybody doing it under historical conditions remotely similar to, to the ones we're living under. The thing that people really don't seem to have their heads around is, look, the, as a Gramscian, the way in which I've always conceived, the way a progressive alliance would work is you would have to have a left leadership of the Labour Party who would, try, who would invite the Liberal Democrats and other parties, but they're the ones that really matter, into a coalition. Of course, it would, this would come with all kinds of risks, but you would do it publicly. You would effectively challenge them. You would say, look... We think the country has been going in the wrong direction for decades. Like every opinion poll shows that it people, most people agree with that. We want to do something different. We want a robust programme of rebuilding the welfare state, rebuilding the public sector, you know, rebuilding our democratic institutions. Are you going to turn around and stop us doing that? Are you going to let yourselves be seen publicly as opposed to that? Or are you going to do it? And and by the way, we're also we're going to do proportional representation because we want to do it any way. And are you, are you going to say no to all that? Well, maybe they would say no to all that. In which case, you know, we're in a different ball game. We'll have to think of something else to do. I strongly suspect that no liberal. Dem my own view is no liberal democrat leadership could say no to that without their party splitting, because a large section of their membership wouldn't tolerate them saying no to that because they would want it. Um, I don't think they could say to no to that without the, their vote collapsing. But I might be and, wrong. And this, this would all sort of be contingent on the sort of the relative popularity of, of a left-led Labour Party at the time, because if, it, if it's more popular, has more sort of social depth, the Liberals would feel more compelled to, to come on board. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is a good illustration. This is how hegemony works, is you try and build a coalition and you try and pull it in your direction. That's what you try to do. When people object to all this, I mean, the thing that they're afraid of is that a Labour-Liberal-Democrat coalition would be a sort of centrist coalition, a, a neoliberal coalition that would exclude the left from government and exclude kind of left-wing demands. I think that's a legitimate fear, but I think there's absolutely no historic basis to think that, that there's any more chance of a Labour-Liberal-Democrat coalition doing that than a majority Labour government doing that. Because the last time we had a majority Labour government, that is exactly what happened anyway. So, I mean, there's just no reason not to try it, if you know. I mean, also, I mean, ultimately, if, if it turns out the Liberal Democrats say, no, you know, we, we hate you, you're, you're socialist, we'll never work with you, well, then we just, you just don't do it. You know, you just, you just don't do the, the plan. So why, I mean, and you asked, like, why, and you know, how is all that informed by a Marxism? Well, it, it's informed by Marxism for several reasons. One is, as a Marxist, as a hard-headed Marxist realist, I think it is very clear that the organised working class in Britain is, is nowhere near strong enough to build, uh, to implement a socialist programme without support from the kind of social constituencies that the Liberal Democrats represent, which is essentially sort of professional, you know, the, the liberal professional classes in those parts of the country where Labour is weak and the more progressive sections of the petty bourgeoisie. 
Secondly, it's also based on the fact that in terms of a basic class analysis, look, the Liberal Democrats don't have any significant corporate you know, backers, actually, whereas the Labour right is absolutely historically in uh, bed with significant sections of finance capital, media capital, and historically, if you're talking about the old Labour right, industrial capital. So... It's just not even logical, really, to see the Labour Party as somehow, you know, inherently more progressive than the Liberal Democrats, even on a class basis. I mean, there's this kind of, uh, there is this idea that, oh, well, because we've got the trade union link, this is something Trotz love to say, oh, the part, Labour is the organic expression of the, you know, political identity of the working class. I'm sorry, but that's a sort of, that is just a sort of sub-Marxist class analysis, in my view. It's not even, that's such a sentimental and unsophisticated analysis of the class nature of the Labour Party that it doesn't even deserve the name vulgar Marxist. It's just sort of sub-Marxist, frankly. It's just, I mean, it's childlike in its simplicity. So absolutely the Labour Party does have a historic relationship with the trade unions, but the trade union movement itself is historically very divided between sections which you can say have some genuinely progressive and and even proto-revolutionary tendencies and others which have a basically disciplinary function in terms of their their tendency to discipline the workforce on behalf of capital. And the latter latter type of trade union have historically been more influential on the Labour Party than the former, frankly. But let's, I mean, to bring it, just to tie all that back to the book, the reason people really struggle to conceptualise that as a Marxian or post-Marxian position is because they can't get their heads around the idea of hegemony as a dynamic process. Okay, and that is a really crucial feature of the concept of hegemony that Gramsci puts forward, and it's an aspect of that concept that we have tried to develop in our book, partly by bringing in philosophy from people like Deleuze and Guattari as well. I mean, one of our basic definitions of hegemony is hegemony is the capacity to determine the direction of travel in which a social formation moves. And that's the whole point. The whole point of trying to form a coalition with liberals and their institutions would be to try to generally pull them in a leftward direction. Um, that would be the point of it. And part of the, and this comes back to your very first question, one of the sort of habits of mind, which we think is far, far too prevalent on the left, is the inability to imagine doing that. You know, people can't imagine actually dynamically transforming the, rela- the uh, relations of force in a society. They can't imagine actually changing some people's minds, like bringing some people with them who weren't with them already. And, um, but that, if you can't imagine that, you really can't imagine a strategy that could possibly win. To go to the, uh, to go to the first chapter of the book, the chapter is titled Who Won the 20th Century? And in that chapter, you discuss the most significant political tendencies of of the century. And you ask the question as to who at the century's end could feel that their objectives had been most achieved and and secured. And as examples, you talk about the new left of the 1960s, the socially conservative strands of of the new right of the 70s and 80s. And you argue that neither group could really feel that their goals had been properly achieved by the year 2000. So before we come on to who you think did win the 20th century, Can you explain why you think both the new left and the new right couldn't really look around at the world of the late 90s and early 2000s and feel that this was what they had been aiming for? If we perhaps start with the new right. Okay, sure. Well, depending how far back you want to trace it, I would trace the new right really beginning with the Barry Goldwater presidential campaign of 64. The the Republican candidate. Yes, that's right. And he was he was such a total failure that that Johnson then inherited this enormous majority in the legislature from 
uh, Kennedy that meant he could implement the Civil Rights Act and the Great Society reforms and the Vietnam War. But. So Barry Goldwater uh, onwards. And the thing that the Conservatives, the thing that Goldwater is rhetorically most opposed to, the thing that then Reagan... Uh, as governor of California and as leader of the conservative movement in America in the 70s and then as president is opposed to is the rising tide of social liberalization you know it's it's feminism in its various aspects it's um, sexual liberation in its various aspects and eventually you know eventually including you know gay and queer liberation of course, I don't. They would. They would look at the world we're in today, where so many of those ideas have become completely normalised, and they would absolutely feel that they had failed. They completely failed to defend the civilizational culture they saw themselves as trying to defend. They would absolutely have looked at Obama, you know, the fact of a black president, and seen that as a just an unimaginable defeat. You know, they were trying to roll back the tide of desegregation. You end up with a black guy in the White House. Now, for what for all the criticisms that we can make from the left of Obama, and I will make, I can make them endlessly. That there's no question that those guys, people like Goldwater and his supporters, would have seen that as a, just a, a devastating defeat. Do you think that looking back and looking at figures like Goldwater or Reagan or, or Thatcher in the UK, that we tend to think about their social agenda as strategic, that they did those things in order to to do what they really cared about, which was to prosecute that, that economic programme. Well, yeah, well, I have, I have sort of said that at times rhetorically, especially when talking about Thatcherism in the 80s. And I think that may be true. Or that certainly is true of some of the people around them. Mm. It so may it would, be it would true. reflect a split within the movement. I think so, yeah. It may be true of, of, of even Thatcher and Reagan as individuals, but it's certainly not true of a huge section of their political base and support. A huge section of their political base and support always thought that the whole point was to defend the mid-century idea of the family, for example. And the ideological inspirations as well, people like Hayek. and, and so Sure, well, people like Hayek. I mean, you know, Melinda Cooper illustrates this really well, that, you know, you can't really separate their views on the family on, and on, for example, the, the sanctity of inherited wealth from their economic policies. I mean, they just you can't you just can't really separate them. Like they saw themselves as defending. I mean, I would say they saw themselves basically as defending a particular set of social arrangements and a particular set of class privileges and a particular class culture within which all of those things were completely integrated. I think it certainly is the case that for for, for key sections of their supporters. And in particular, for the institutions which really allowed them to be politically successful, namely, you know, corporations, banks, hedge funds, the people funneling the money into their think tanks and their election campaigns, the real objective didn't really have anything to do with the social agenda. But that's partly why, you know, when we come to the question of who won the 20th century, you know, we include among the winners, you know, we include among the winners finance capitalists. You know, they, the, the bit of the neoliberal new right programme that they wanted is the bit that got done. Whereas mm, yeah. the bit that was most important to a lot of the ordinary sort of supporters of that project didn't get done at all. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.